I've really struggled with this one. I'm sorry, brother. Yeah, I mean, like, putting this list together has been an exercise in just agonizing, right? Trying to figure out five most significant nonfiction books, excluding the Bible, has been much harder than I thought it would be. No, I totally understand, because it's like, I feel like I'm going to watch this episode later and shame that guy who didn't put the right books on his list. Yeah, yeah. I think this is these are the kind of episodes that if we did them multiple times, there, there, there are some books that would appear each time, no doubt. But I think the nonfiction ones probably would change the most. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm Joel. I'm Jacob. And this is the Tole Lege podcast where we encourage you to love, read, and delight yourself in the study of great literature. So Joel, what's new since the last podcast we recorded? <laughs> yeah, so not not much uh, in terms of the recording time, huh. uh, but uh, probably quite a number of things in terms of the listener time. I want everybody to know that I have worn this outfit since the last time we recorded. <laughs> we uh, so we are doing kind of part two of a short series of significant books in our life. And the last episode has a lot of important introductory material, qualifiers, things like that, not all of which we'll repeat here. But suffice it to say, in these episodes, we're not really trying to give a recommended reading list to any of our viewers, although there are several of the titles that we do recommend, uh, but really kind of describing the ways in which certain works of literature impacted us and shaped us as readers and in pursuing a life of reading great literature. So we, we agreed ahead of time that we would have five books on each list. Right. And I have six. And you can pry the sixth one out of my cold, dead hands. It's just the way it is. <laughs> no problem. Okay. I think we will, we will allow a special dispensation of grace. I just uh, couldn't. I didn't know what to cut. I couldn't yeah. do it. Well, so. I really, so we, we did the five most significant fiction books last time. Uh, and again, almost all of those were drawn for me prior to the age of 10 or right. 12. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and today we're going to do the five most significant nonfiction. Or if you're Jacob, we're going to do the the six most significant nonfiction. And again, most of mine are going to be from my childhood, from like pre-adolescence. So like these, these episodes are about the books that I read prior to puberty that put me on a path of, uh, of a reading life. For you, many of these books are coming from more recent history, at least the last decade or so of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go first again, if that's yeah, okay. Please. And do. so what I'll do to kind of harmonize my my sixth book, I'm gonna actually kind of share two of them together. They actually both come from approximately the same time. Uh, I read them at least within the same three or four years. At least I can definitely say that because I read them when I was in college, right? Uh, so I did my my bachelor's degree uh, in religion and apologetics from Luther Rice University. I took a few courses before that at a few different institutions, but that's where I graduated from. 
Um, one of the books that I read in that program, um, and again, I haven't read this book. I mean, it's been, <laughs> it's been a long time. It's pushing 20 years at this point, right? Um, but I don't remember some of the details of this book, but there's something that I do remember it. And it has, I know it's profoundly shaped the way I think of ministry when I was in pastoral ministry, but even just relationships with people. And even as a teacher, it still profoundly affects the way I think about teaching. Hmm. And this book is called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert E. Coleman. Classic. I It's classic. Yeah. I, I, so I haven't come back to it in so long. I, it's hard for me to say, I don't know what I would think if I came back to it today. Yeah. But let me tell you what I remember about it that, that continues to shape my thinking. The primary thing that I remember about this book is that he talked about how Jesus's pattern of ministry and evangelism was that he basically had three spheres, right? He had the crowds, he had the disciples, and then even within the disciples, he had his closest set of three. Yep. And the the fundamental principle fundamental principle that I recall from this is that the crowd is the the pool of people, right, that we would preach the gospel to, that we would share the good news openly with, and we would always be looking for the crowd to become the disciple. Yep. Right, we we would hope that they would hear the good news and they would come closer to Christ, come closer uh, to us as a teacher of the gospel, right? Um, and that you have people who move into that sphere, and they're 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 Christians. Um, but even within that sphere, you have some who long for a deeper level of discipleship than the average Christian typically goes after, and you want to have your eyes open. For those people, those are the people that are maybe themselves being called to ministry, right? And um, and the big idea here is that by by Jesus's willingness to preach to the crowds, but his spending the vast majority of his time on his disciples and even the closest group therein, this is how the world got overturned, right? Because he poured himself into a few men who would entrust the faithful men also after him, yeah. right? And from there, from, you know, I mean, what, 120 in the upper room, right? right? The gospel has spread yeah. across the entire globe, yes. right? And, and so the, just that principle, the way of thinking about people I talk to about anything really as there's the crowds that, you know, I'm going to share the good news with. I'm going to share truth and goodness and beauty with. Uh, but some of them will move closer and want to lay hold of truth. Right. And I can give them more of my time than I should be giving the crowds, right? right? That's, that's the thing about social media today, right? Social media is giving your time to nothing but the crowds. Right. I mean, yeah. that's a mistake, yeah. right? Get, I mean, I, mean I, I think there are benefits to social media. I really do. I use it. And yet, uh, most of the conversations I see people having online, I'm like, get off. Go, go talk to three-dimensional people because right. that'll far more benefit. I think part of what I think is because of this book. Um, and so I, even as a, as a teacher in a classical Christian school, this shapes my, my thinking about how I spend time with my students. Um, I want all of my students to be passionate learners of truth, yes. Yes. but I can't make them be right. Exactly. I can't make them be right. But when I see lights come on, I get to draw them closer. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's some of them, they're going to go on to be teachers, right, for themselves, yeah. right? And so uh, I just it, it just profoundly affected me. And so the one that I'm going to pair with that, to so kind of make it a little more even, 
I also read in that same program, at least, and it's Tactics by Greg Kokel. Yeah. And uh, this is this is a profoundly simple book to read. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a hard book to read. Everyone should read it. I mean, this is definitely <laughs> every Christian should. Like, it, I mean, I, I I don't know if I can say this. I probably regret it the second I say it. But I'm going to go ahead and say it. If I could whittle down one nonfiction book outside of Scripture for everybody to read, it might be Tactics. Wow. Because wow. I know, but. All it does is teach you how to engage people about your Christian convictions mm. in a winsome, powerful way, just like Jesus did. Yeah. Just by asking good questions. So if I could kind of pair Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, and Tactics together, they pair very nicely, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because you see Jesus' methodology and how he moves from the crowd to the disciple to the inner disciple and tactics is kind of like the hand-to-hand -hand combat methods for engaging right. the crowd, which sometimes turns people into disciples, Yeah, right? And so they go together so phenomenally well. And every conversation I have with somebody about the gospel or defending the good news of Jesus Christ or making the case of the resurrection or the reliability of the Bible or whatever it may be is profoundly affected by tactics. Yeah. And, uh, I just can I can just testify to how well it works. Yeah, and it's exactly what Jesus did. Yeah, I mean, you were you recently were doing a youth apologetics conference where tactics was kind of at the centerpiece of a lot of the material that you were presenting. Yeah. Right, yeah. there was a lot of a lot of things that that book very clear. Anybody who knows you and knows kind of your history in ministry and and just the way that you've deployed uh, those techniques, uh, both in an evangelistic context and a discipling context, and now you know, kind of classical Christian education um, knows how significant that book has been for you. I, I had not thought about Coleman's book in a number of years, but I remember I read that uh, probably the first or second year that I was a pastor. And that would have been like age 20 or 21. Okay. Uh, yeah. Kind of embarrassingly, I, I started really young. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh man, what a what a tremendous impact that had on my thinking and on my approach to relationships and on the way that you think about what you're doing in ministry. And yeah, I, I, I could say the same that uh, in many ways that book continues to shape what I do today, even if I'm not always consciously thinking this is where I got it. Yeah. Uh, so great. Yeah. Great pick. Um, well, my first nonfiction uh, is not going to become it by any surprise to anyone who knows me. Uh, and that is a carry on Mr. Bowditch by Gene Lee Latham, uh, which actually is uh, sitting here on the shelf right next to me. And uh, this is a young adult uh, biography of Nathaniel Bowditch, who is the father of American navigation, uh, whose work on navigation actually continues to be used by the U.S. Navy and Merchant Marine and various other sailing you know, vessels and institutions to this very day. So interesting. I got to just interrupt real quick. I thought that was a fiction book. I haven't read it. Yeah, no, it's a biography. I didn't know that. Yes, so, yes. Okay. And there is a more uh, scholarly, you know, academic biography of uh, Bowditch. But, uh, but this is the one that I read uh, as a very young child. And just, I, I don't know how many times I've read the book, many times. I, I haven't read it yearly as an adult. Yeah. Uh, it's not that kind of a book that would be profitable in that way. It, we've, we've read it to our kids. I have given this to so many young boys uh, for birthday presents or various other presents. Um, very easy to read. Again, it is a biography written for young adults. Mm. Um, but
but uh, Bowditch was uh, uh, was a young boy who was apprenticed at a very early age, um, had a fascination with learning, was very much an autodidact, which means a self-directed or self-taught learner. Um, he learned methods of teaching himself the things that he needed to know, including, before he was done, many different languages. Uh, he would build notebooks, uh, have a dedicated notebook for each subject. He would work hard all day, and then he would sit by the lamp for many hours late into the night, copying information into his notebooks that he would study in books that he borrowed from different people. Um, when he uh, wanted to learn navigation, uh, he was advised by one of the older men, mentors in his life, that anyone who wanted to know navigation needed to read uh, Newton's Principia. Uh, and so for several years, Bowditch uh, looked for an opportunity to do that. When he finally obtained a copy of the book, he discovered that it was in Latin and he didn't know how to read Latin. And so he decided, well, I've got to learn Latin in order to read this book. Mm. He got a grammar, a dictionary, and a New Testament, and he began learning Latin on his own. And uh, that awakened within me. Um, I, 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 maybe it's a chicken and egg thing. Maybe yeah. it spoke to me because I already had some of that impulse. Because one of the books that I almost made it onto this list is a book that I first encountered in my great-grandmother's uh, laundry room. And it was a child's primer uh, for span learning Spanish. Hmm. And uh, I, have, I have no idea what the title was. I have no idea who the authors were. I, it, it's an old, it, it was an old book then, hmm. many, many years ago now. And I was absolutely fascinated uh, to read the, the English sections that would then insert Spanish words. And hmm. you could look at the, the dictionary in the back and see what the Spanish word meant. And so maybe there was already that impulse in me. But Carry On Mr. Bowditch absolutely made me an autodidact for life. Literally, that book has impacted every day of my life since the first time I read it. There are things I do to this very day that I do because of that book. And I cannot stress enough, I, I think that anyone who is committed to an intellectual life, and by that I don't mean an academic life, because the two are not right. necessarily co coextensive. No, <laughs> um, but anyone who's interested in an intellectual life must be an autodidact. No. You cannot um, pursue an intellectual life merely by enrolling in a degree program or a, or taking a course, taking a class. There's a, there's a difference. Uh, no matter what the topic is, learning a language, uh, growing as a Christian. There's a difference between taking a class and studying a subject or discipline. And Nathaniel Bowditch's story taught me that. Uh, the idea of learning a language so that I could read one book, how powerful is that one book? How important is that book? Is it important enough that I would learn another language yeah. just to be able to read it? Or would I say, nope, I'm not going to learn a language. I'm going to wait for the movie, right? <laughs> um, I, I cannot stress enough how important that book has been in my life. And it's why I have recommended it to young boys, really to everybody. Um, f fair warning, uh, when my wife read this to our children when they were young, uh, there were tears because it's a true story. Hmm. And uh, there are sad parts of the story. But uh, for me, at least, single most important work of nonfiction outside of Holy Scripture without, without a close second. There's, there's no question. Carry on, Mr. Bowditch, Gene Lee Latham, highly recommend it. Well, I feel like I, you know, I know you fairly well, Joel, and I would say that uh, you are one of the most self-directed people that I know. 
and so it is interesting to hear you just say that you feel like that was so influential in, in helping you move that direction. No doubt. So no doubt. Very cool. All right. Uh, my next one is Augustine's Confessions. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so if you're, if you're not familiar, this this is the biography, the autobiography, in in a sense of uh, Augustine, and yet it's not a normal autobiography in a lot of ways because it is also a work of theology it's mm-hmm. also a work of philosophy um but it is a powerful um story of augustine's life and uh the way he grew up wayward from christ getting to see his mother fervently pray diligently for him mm-hmm. as he um uh, pursues godless things, godless relationships, uh, pursues fame really as a great rhetorician, um, you know, just things like that. And, and so, um, but the thing that I think that makes this book stand out to me, uh, I mean, it's unique in the way it's cast because it is biography, but it's also discourses on theology and philosophy. This book really helped me, I think in some ways, grasp the greatness and and bigness of God, the way he wrestles uh, with some of God's attributes, like his uh, omniscience and an omnipresence, right? You know, I mean, before I'd read this book, I read, for instance, uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which is phenomenal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Phenomenal book. I'd totally recommend that to everybody. And yet something about the way he delivered some of the same ideas, but in his kind of walking through his own thoughts, thought processes and being very honest about the errors that he had that kept him from being a Christian for a long time. His, his misconceptions of what Christians meant by the omnipresence of God and, right. and what, what kind of substance is God and does he fit into things? Does he take, does take up space? You know, all these things he's wrestling with. And as he, he wrestles through all the errors and he's in a, he's in a, cult called the Manichees, you know, and, uh, and then finally comes to truth. It's, it's such a, it's a powerful experience to walk through the life of Augustine and his errors and embracing the truth. And by, by walking through his errors with him, it helped me see the truth better. Right. Right. And, and so, um, yeah, there's just, there's just something very powerful about the book. There's a lot of things I could point out that I like about it. Right. Um, but I, I do think that, yeah, just the way it was delivered helps take what you might call sort of systematic theology ideas, right? And deliver them to me in a way that resonated. Yeah. Yeah. The first 10, 10 books of the confessions, I think for sure. I mean, you know, obviously read all of it, but uh, the first 10 books uh, are especially really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and probably the kind of work that every Christian at some point ought to read, not to say that you have to read it to be saved or anything silly yeah. like that, but yeah, definitely a very definitely very challenged. Important. It challenged my conceptions too, especially um, coming from a Baptist background. Sure. Yeah. So the first, probably the first time I read it, because I read it numerous times. <laughs> first time I read it, um, some of his ideas about baptism, for instance, yeah. really struck bad chords with me at right. first. You know, yeah. um, and I'm not saying I necessarily perfectly agree with Augustine on baptism either, yeah. but but I didn't have even the right categories for dealing with some of the things that he was right. dealing with. So reading it. As a as a Southern Baptist, and then coming back and reading it now, with more covenantal framework. It, you know, it, it's that book has grown with me. Yes, yes. So we love, by the way, all of our non-covenantal Baptist absolutely, listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. 
continue to like our podcast. But I'm just being honest, right? You know, my, my perspective changed and my reading of that book changed. Yes. And yes. And what can I say? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so my second book, and, 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 and I need to preface this by saying that when I said at the beginning of the episode, I struggled with this list. I struggled with all of the lists, maybe least with the series list. Um, but uh, the struggle here was not finding significant works of nonfiction. It was paring it down. It was trying to figure out what are the most significant um, because there were just way too many books on that list. So many that I could put here. Three of the books of these, three of these five were very clear from the get-go. There's no question, carry on Mr. Bowditch, there's no question about number three. There's no question about number five. Number two and number four, I really wrestled with because there are so many books that could have gone there. But what I finally decided uh, for my second book uh, is is a book that I I cannot tell you the title of it. I can't <laughs> tell you the author of it. I remember what the book looked like, and technically it was part of a series, but it's not on the series list because it wasn't the series. It was this particular volume in the series. Okay. Uh, it was a series of young readers uh, collected works. And it was a multi-volume series I remember that my parents had uh, where each of the volumes focused on different things. And there was one volume that was focused on biographies. I I think I read the entire series when I was very, very young. Uh, This would definitely be something I read six, seven, eight years old. But the volume on biographies I came back to many times. And the volume on biographies and one biography in particular in it uh, a, a short biography of Teddy Roosevelt as a child, hmm. his interest in naturalism and the natural world, again, his autodidactic nature, just had a huge impact on my life. I loved animals. I was constantly capturing and keeping various species. I was raising, you know, all kinds of different uh, rodents and bugs and tadpoles and frogs and uh, everything you could imagine. My parents were very long suffering. I literally, my room was full of terrariums and our back deck was full of terrariums in addition to many dogs, cats, guinea pigs, gerbils, etc. Um, this is definitely a side of you. I didn't know anything. About. Oh, oh <laughs> my, I could talk for hours about this. So, but anyway, that, that biography, um, I, I have to say was so significant because it really awakened in me uh, an interest both in the natural world, which I think I already had, but it just helped me imagine ways of engaging in that love um, and awakened in me a love for biographies. I could not tell you which I read first, Carry On Mr. Bowditch or this Teddy Roosevelt biography. I think it would have been the Roosevelt biography, honestly, uh, because it was it was really, really early in my life. Um, and obviously, I haven't I haven't read it in in. Uh, you know, over 35 years, uh, maybe close. Yeah. Yeah. Over 35 for sure. Um, but it had, it did have a significant effect on my life. Uh, I, I have since then loved biographies. Uh, I've, I've loved biographies of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, whose politics I might not entirely agree with, but, uh, but whose life story I find fascinating. Yeah. Uh, it certainly played into the early autodidactic uh, shaping uh, of my life. And, uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, I can't, I can't give you a title. I can't give you an author. Uh, but I can say that story of his life really did have a big impact on my life. Awesome. Yeah. 
The next one I'm going to give you is a very recent read, but it, I mean, I considered it given it like first like place, <laughs> but I, wow. I didn't quite give it first place. But um, so it's a work of Joseph Pieper, yeah. who has in the last several years become towards the very top of my list of favorite people to read. Um, challenging C.S. Lewis almost, right? I mean, I, I still put Lewis above him. Wow. But I mean, like, he's on the heels of Lewis for me is how much yeah. I enjoy reading yeah. Joseph Pieper. Um, and if you don't know who Joseph Pieper is, uh, he's a philosopher. He wrote many uh, short treatises of philosophy. These Most of his books are under 200 pages, right? Yep. Yeah. It was one of the things I really appreciate about him. And right. he, he brings power and clarity to great big ideas yeah. in a relatively succinct fashion. Um, and so that he just kind of has that gift, right? So I appreciate that. But the, the one in particular is actually one of the shortest ones I've read by him. And it's called A Brief Reader on the Virtues of the Human Heart. Mm. And I, in my doctoral dissertation, virtue is a central part of this. And so this is one of the books that I have read over the last couple of years. Um, and his exposition on what virtue is, the way he lays out each of the cardinal and theological virtues, the definitions that he gives to them. Uh, I can't, I can't see virtue anymore without his words resonating in my ears. Mm. Right. I mean, that he, he speaks so plainly about them. It makes me say who could disagree. Right. He's just right. It's, it's inarguable. You know? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, and so this is a book that, I would have definitely every minister, definitely every classical Christian educator mm -hmm. read. Yeah. Um, because understanding virtue and its negative counterparts, vice, right, is very important in, in the formation of, of young people. Yeah. Uh, and he just, he just brings such wisdom and clarity to that subject. Sure. Uh, can't I can't say enough in favor of it yeah yeah definitely the the modern philosopher that's influenced you the most uh, yeah definitely yeah. And, and of course he's very Aristotelian yep you know yep. he's he's um he's working off a lot of those categories but he you know he brings Aristotle so to speak uh and and Aquinas right. so to speak sure. right in, into a more modern day yeah. and um and 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 just shows us how those ideas which are true and good and beautiful and unchanging because they actually reflect the unchanging perfect nature of god right right, right. not that aristotle's perfect not that aquinas is perfect i'm not saying anything like that right but on these points man, they're they're pretty much right yeah. yeah yeah and he brings that to the modern day and shows us that these matter just as much as ever and the more i get to know about joseph pieper know that he was a german philosopher who lived during hitler's reign and the things that he and some other people did in resistance to that. And just that he lived, he lived out a life of virtue. Yeah. I just I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good choice. Good choice. Uh, the third one on my list um, may be surprising, but not to anybody who knows me. This is another book that I have given away. I don't know how many copies, but many. Uh, I want every young man that, uh, that I get to influence in any significant way to have a copy of this book. Uh, this book was published when I was 10 years old. 
I don't know exactly at what point I finally read it. I know that my dad got it probably the year it was published or very shortly thereafter. And I know that when I read it the first time, I have a distinct memory of the material being so familiar that it almost felt redundant reading it because it's not exciting prose. It's not a stirring, soul-captivating book. It's a self-help book. And so it might not seem to have any place on a podcast about great literature, but it had a great influence on my life, and that is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I was going to guess what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> Close. <Yeah. laughs> but no. no okay. Yeah, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, that, that is a book. I don't, I don't know how many times I've read it. Not nearly as many times as many, many other books. And again, it's very tactical. It's, it's not super strategic, although there is an overarching vision of a productive life and a productive, a good life being a meaningful life, being understood as a productive life, being achieved by a disciplined life. That progression in that book is really important. And then it's just a, a series of you know, really seven habits, seven tactics, and each one has its own chapter. Um, talking about sharpening the saw, making sure that you've got the right priorities, being able to triage the things that come at you every day. Um, it's a self-help book, no doubt, but my dad read that, again, probably the year it was published or, or the, the next, and began really in, instilling those ideas in me um, Maybe, I mean, quite honestly, and I don't mean this in a, in a critical way, but maybe he encouraged those, those habits in me even more than he himself was implementing some of them. Uh, and, and probably all of us as parents, we're trying to get our children to, to live nice. more consistent <laughs> than we have. Yeah. Um, but, but it was the kind of book that, you know, my dad read a lot of business books, a lot of self-help books, things in that space. And yet this was the one that really stuck with me. And uh, again, I realized that, that my list so far, uh, you know, has, has really described books that kind of helped me strategically and tactically pursue a life of an autodidactic uh, discipline. And, uh, and this one was certainly in that category, but it's one that I think had tremendous value. Uh, and even if it's not a book that I, re you know, return to often now, uh, it is a book that I continue to encourage young people to read and uh, to implement some of the insights that are found in it. That's great. I, I did read that years ago. Uh, it doesn't stand out as strong to me, interestingly. Right, but, right. but I, I do remember reading I read it uh, as part of a leadership program that I was in a church for a while. So um, the next one that I'm going to mention is one that we have already talked about extensively on this podcast, but I just it has to be on the list, and that's Abolition of Man. Yeah, of course. Um, the Abolition of Man is a, a book that is, is all about the education of youth and all about the need to have the heart regulate the, the mind and the passions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when it comes to classical Christian education, uh, there's a lot of books that float around that say these are the ones that you, you, know, you need to read, but this should be at the top of the list um, in a lot of ways. So along with maybe the Bieber book I just mentioned, um, which are really on similar themes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it is about uh, attuning the hearts. The, the difference is Pieper's book, 
would teach you a lot about what it looks like to have a heart that's rightly ordered. And uh, Lewis's book, Abolition of Man, it teaches you what happens when you don't. Right. Yeah. Kind of two sides of the same. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it, he uh, somewhat prophetically cast a picture of what man looks like when we let go of virtue, when yes. virtue ceases to be a part of what we see as a fundamental part of education. Yeah. And we're living that out right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we talked about it extensively. We have, a, I think we did two, two episodes. Two or three. Or something on, on yeah. that book. Two. So, okay. So go back. Right, and the producer says check, two. Check that out, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great choice. I, I am once again struck by the fact that in this series, you are picking books of extraordinary substance, you know, true classics. I'm picking the books that I read between the ages of six and 13 that are maybe not as substantive. But you know, it could be a whole different story if I had been a more substantive person earlier in life. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I mean, like, your, your choices are great, but, uh, yeah. Uh, my fourth, I mean, like, maybe you're going to laugh at this. I don't know. I mean, like, I'm embarrassed at well, following that. How do you follow that? If it helps that? you at all, when we get to the episode on the series, I'm going to have one on there that you're going to hate. So, oh, I already know what series that's going to be, and you are right. I am already hating it, even at the thought of it. Yeah, because it does not belong in a podcast. Stay tuned. It's not belong in a podcast about great literature, except for you're wrong, and I will demonstrate why. We'll see. My fourth book, and and again, you know, it was the second one and the fourth one that I really struggled with. But but if I'm being honest. Most significant books, as in books that have shaped the life that I lead to this day in my mid-40s, The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. <laughs> this is a book when I teach writing, I require my students to read. It's a book when I advise aspiring writers. I, I have told, I don't know how many people, there are going to be people listening to this podcast that are like, yep, he told me to get it. Um, it's, it's a book that I don't reread, you know, frequently, but have read, reread a number of times. It is a short book about good writing. Mm -hmm. And I realize immediately there are going to be people that say, well, Joel, I've read your writing and, and it's not very good, you know, so it, did, it didn't work. Well, uh, fair, fair. Um, this is a book that is, is part grammar and syntax, and it breaks it down in very simple rules that I literally think about every single day because I write every single day. Strunk and White are in my head every single day with regard to where I put commas, hmm. with regard to how I express certain ideas. And although I am sure my writing doesn't measure up in any way, shape, or form to the quality that, that theirs did, um, I have to be honest. I think it's the single best little book on writing. I've, I've read a bunch of books on writing over the years, many, 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 starting when I was a child, including this one. And, uh, and it's still the one that if I, if I, you know, were asked, what's the one book on good writing, concise, powerful, grammatically, uh, good, solid, tight writing elements of style by Strunk and White. And so, because so much of my life, um, revolves around the written word, it's, it's, I have to admit it belongs on a book list of most significant nonfiction works. And and White is Charlotte's e. White. Web yeah. author, correct? E.B. Yeah. White, yeah. Stuart Little, uh, Charlotte's Web, uh, an essayist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, known best for his children's literature, although by no means was that 
kind of like uh, his only work. Um, yeah, yeah, brilliant yeah. author, yeah. and uh, and and one who's uh, who has one of the sayings that I repeat regularly when he said that uh, writing is never truly done; it's only due. Hmm. He would write for a newspaper, and you have deadlines, and and you could you could fiddle with it forever. Uh, but finally you have to turn it in. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, his, his writing and his writing on writing have been a powerful part of my life. I have a very good and gracious professor reading through my dissertation right now who wishes that was on my list. <laughs> it is an area that I, I am still trying to grow in. Right, so right. yeah, but, um, um, very good. Very good. Uh, my, my last book on my list is the consolation of philosophy. Um, I'm not surprised. Yeah, of course. Um, it's a joy to read this book. It's a it's a it's a it's a unique book yeah. in so many ways. Uh, it, it goes back and forth between poetry and prose, mm -hmm. which for um, kind of philosophy that I was used to reading, that was really striking to me. You know, um, so to, to have kind of that uh, aspect of art and imagination alongside some pretty powerful logical philosophy happening mm. again it's just it's it drew me into a different world you know <laughs> than yeah. i was used to being uh part of when i had read so much more just analytical philosophy sure. and things like that so uh but uh the thing that most profoundly impacts me about this book that continues to draw me back to it um is the idea of happiness mm. and how he presents the idea of happiness in this book his view of what happiness is, is the correct view. Mm. And it is the view that virtually no one holds today. Mm. That happiness is a life of contemplation of virtue, the good, who God is, right? And then living in accordance with that. That's what real happiness is. It is not about the ups and downs and twists and turns of life and a good thing happened to me and now I'm happy and a bad thing happened to me and now I'm unhappy, right? Yeah. Happiness is something so much greater than that. And even the way he deals with uh, the problem of evil, which is it's interesting. Not everybody, not even Christian philosophers always agree with his take on how to deal with that. Um, but he, he has a very unique and imaginative response to those things that I have found very helpful. And, it, and it's so much more powerful to realize that this man was sitting in prison waiting to die when he wrote this book yeah. because he had been unjustly accused. And he did, in fact, die shortly after this book was written. Hmm. Um, and so it's it's just a, a powerful book. Yeah. And saying, where do I find true happiness? And it's nowhere else than in the maker of the universe. Yeah. Great choice. True classic. Yeah. Well, my fifth book, kind of like on my list of most significant fiction, is the one on the list that I would say I read as an adult. But again, I couldn't identify exactly when. I don't remember the first time I read it. I do know that um, at some point, uh, outside of the Bible, it became not only my favorite, and it's certainly my favorite, but the most important nonfiction book in my life. And I don't think it will ever get displaced. I don't want to, you know. We'll, we'll see. But I, I don't anticipate that happening no matter how many years I live. And that is Orthodoxy by mm -hmm. G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. um, 
to speak about a book that awakens imagination. I would have thought my imagination was awake before I read this book, and I'm sure to a degree it was. Again, one of the one of the lessons from the this series of episodes is not you need to read these books because some of these books you don't need to read. I, I don't know that everybody needs to go out and read, you know, a, a children's biography of Teddy Roosevelt. Right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, at the same time, you have to read certain books to be prepared to read other books. Right. And when I, when I found orthodoxy, I, 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 I began to see the world in a whole new way. I began to see scripture in a new way. I began to see God in a much larger way. Uh, I, I began to see that we do not live in a closed mechanical universe. We live in a magical world full of angels and demons. And the fact that water from the ocean evaporates and becomes the rain that turns water into wine in vineyards uh, is, uh, is something that once you see, you can't unsee. Uh, Chesterton obviously has become arguably my favorite author, certainly one of the most important authors in my life. And uh, I'm reading something by him almost continuously uh, every year uh, uh, of my life. And ha- that's been true for a number of years. Um, but Orthodoxy is my favorite book outside of the Bible. And it is uh, without question the most important book outside of the Bible in my life. And I, I wish I could I wish I could identify when I first read it. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that the first time I read it, I didn't really get it. And so now I, I've had the experience for many years of encouraging other people to read it. And on their first reading, sometimes that, you know, it becomes just an amazing experience. And sometimes they come back puzzled and say, I, I'm confused. So if if that's your experience, I would say don't be discouraged. Um I'm quite sure that the first time I read it, I didn't fully understand it to whatever extent I did understand it. But I reread it every year and have now for many years. And uh, it is it, it is it is a masterpiece. Um, I'm very thankful for Chesterton, thankful for uh, the influence that he has left on my life and, and I trust will continue to have in my life. I don't know that Orthodoxy is his most important book. Uh, Everlasting Man might get that nod, uh, but Orthodoxy has been his most important book in my life. And so I'm happy to put it as my number five. And, and uh, again, maybe we should say my list, at least, it's not, it's not one through five in terms of significance, it's more chronological order mm. in which I read them. For you, it might be a little bit more rating them one through five. Yeah, I, I tried this to. A it's hard to do. Yeah, we, t- do. we tackled this assignment a little bit differently, and and you could see that reflected in the diff- uh, again with the ex- with the exception of the last book on each of my two lists so far. They're all books that I read, you know, before the age of fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, um, but. Uh, yeah, but orthodoxy. Whenever, whenever I read it the first time, it's uh, it's it's had a big impact ever since. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed this, Jacob. Any any final thoughts? Wrapping up. Anything else that uh, we need to say? I you know I don't think so. Other just than the general encouragement, right? Become become a reader. Yeah. You know, I mean, there there are so many things that may draw your attention in time. Uh, I love movies as much as anybody does. Sure. <laughs> I yeah, love you, te- you know television shows. Uh, but but make this a part of your life to grab hold 
of a good book. And, and the thing about the great books, right, or, or get somebody you know who you respect as, as a, a thinker, right, and ask them what books have they read, right? right. And, and lay hold of one of those because that's going to do things for your heart and for your head and for your family. Right. For, you know, for so many that it's worth building that in your life. And we're going to do an episode before too awful long where we talk about building a reading life. Yep. How do we build these habits? What yep. does that look like? How do you fit it into a busy schedule? Uh, you and I are pretty busy, you yep. know. Um, but, but, you know, how do, how do you do that and why is it so important? But it really is important. So if I could just encourage you anything, grab a great book on a pre-approved list, right? And make time for it. Give, right. it. give it even five or 10 minutes a day. It really is important. I think, you know, we talked at the end of our last episode about the power of fiction to draw the reader into an experience, not merely communicate information, but lest it seem as if we are saying that fiction's important and nonfiction's not important. Let me, let me say, um, a lot of people, they only read fiction and they read poor fiction. Yes. They read popular fiction. What I, what I refer to with my kids as mind candy. I think that there is a place for mind candy. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I've been, I've been reading, a, a, you know, one of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan novels when I, when I go to sleep at night because that's the kind of reading that's just strictly entertaining and, and helps me drop off to sleep. So there, there's a place for that. But if, but if the only thing you're reading is popular fiction, then your mind is not being stretched. It's not being challenged. Your soul is not being fed. And so that's where great fiction, classic fiction, and substantial nonfiction, important nonfiction. Again, we could say the same thing about a lot of nonfiction. A lot of people, the only nonfiction that they read are business books or self-help books or you know something like that. Okay, yeah. read something uh, more substantial. Find a great biography. Find a book of history about a period or a person or a battle that interests you. Yeah. Uh, find a work of philosophy. Read the Consolation of Philosophy. Read Confessions by Augustine. Um, find books that will challenge you and believe that those books can also entertain you mm -hmm. because they can. That, that's not to say that you, you only have to read stuffy grown-up books. Uh, but it is to say that, that it's important that we're not only reading words on a page. That's not where the value is. It's not just reading words on a page. It's reading the important books that have stood the test of time and that can have a significant impact on our lives and shaping the kind of people that we are and will be and are becoming. Yeah. The book has been around for several hundred years or more. Yeah. You have to ask yourself, why did the past generations think Probably it was necessary? that I still have this available for yeah. me today. And again, as we've said many times, it's not to say that every old book is important or good. It's certainly not, right? Or that every new book is not worth your time. That's right. certainly not true either, but um, the classics are classics for a reason. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. So until next time, uh, please uh, like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is that you do on social media uh, that Jacob and our producer understand and I confess I don't really understand, but um, uh, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you, hear what uh, uh, would be on your list of most yeah. significant books, whether fiction or nonfiction. Uh, there's a number of ways that you can get in touch with us. That's all easy to find online. Uh, Jacob, it's been fun. I'm enjoying it as always. Yeah, it's been a great time, Joel. Awesome. Until next time. Take up and read.